Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you're interested in learning how to build a company, make money from your art, or if you're just feeling stuck about what to do next, you've come to the right place. Every week, I sit down with a creative entrepreneur to discuss the who, what, and why of their journey. If you liked this episode, please remember to subscribe, like, and share it with a friend. Today, I'm sitting down with Lisa Beth Postuma author of the best-selling book, Baby and Solo. Lisa, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing well. It is, it's great to connect and chat with you. How are things in your neck of the woods these days? Uh, pretty good. It's, uh, I'm, I'm working on my next book, so uh, I'm a little quiet in, in public right now, but um but behind the scenes, things are, things are pretty busy. Yeah. That's, that's always good. Isn't it? And that's, um, you know, I guess what you're supposed to be doing as an author writing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So for my listeners who are less familiar with your work, mm-hmm. how do you describe yourself and what you do? Uh, well, I'm a young adult author and for people who don't know the difference in in kind of like specific writing genres um the young adult audience is uh considered 13 to 18 and really what constitutes something as a young adult novel really just has to do with the age of the protagonist in your story um so the uh in baby and solo for example the protagonist is 17 years old um and that's really the only criteria that was used to make it a young adult novel. Um, it's actually considered children's literature, which if uh, if anyone out there has read it knows that is kind of ludicrous <laughs> that it would be considered uh, in the children's literature category. Um, but that's just how the industry is and how like where the, you know, where the cards fall. Okay. So yeah, so it just means that I write books um, th- where the age of the characters are younger than 18. <laughs> Okay. All right. Uh, So before we go into your book, which I do want to hear about in great detail, let's start from a little bit from the beginning. Sure. And then just the the idea of of writing. What initially got you interested in writing? So I'm assuming this is also true for you, but I really just enjoy stories and I love hearing everyone's story. Um, And so as someone who likes to hear stories, I thought maybe I could try to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, if I was going to create my own uh, resume for my life, like I think that would be what I would put instead of author, like storyteller. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I was kind of consuming all of these stories and getting all of these ideas and just, you know, kind of took that chance of why don't I try to tell a story? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it was very gratifying, um, super fun, terrifying, uh, all of the things. And, you know, those are the only kind of things worth doing. Mm -hmm. Of course. 
So with your love of storytelling, did that, so did that translate into what you studied in college or what, what did you uh, eventually go to school for? So uh, originally I was a Spanish major um, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to teach high school Spanish. That was kind of my, my dream, but the, the longer that I was in school and I went to a small, um, like a private liberal arts school. And so I was taking some literature courses to fulfill my, you know, requirements for my degree and um, was just, it was like the first time that I could have like real discussions about writing because you're really limited in high school, especially, I mean, I grew up in small town, Indiana, um, small minds, Indiana. So there wasn't like a lot of, I had great teachers. I had phenomenal teachers, but you know, there's only so much that they can do. So with all of those constraints removed, being in these literature courses with these other like really hungry young minds and it's like the wisdom of the teachers and just this freedom. Um, I was like, I want to do this instead. Um, so um, it wasn't a hard switch to go. I was in Spanish education. So I just switched over to English education and I got my degree um, in secondary education, English, and, and then became the kind of teacher who I wished I would have had. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So actually, so for the podcast listeners, um, Elizabeth and I went to high school together. So we are from the same small town, Indiana. I didn't ask you about this in our pre-chat, but what was your opinion of our high school? So I have the the interesting perspective of having both attended Mm -hmm. um, our high school and then become a teacher at our high school. And um, I, I will say that the English department at our high school, um, having taught it at other schools as well, the English department at I, our, our high school is uh, fantastic. Um, the, the people who make up that department, um, the minds behind it, the passion behind it, the, the way that they bring out the best in students, that is not the kind of experience that everyone gets. Um, And I mean, obviously they inspired me because I wanted to become one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in terms of that, I think we had, we were very lucky. Okay. Um, Educationally, otherwise, I I was definitely prepared for college, Um, but we grew up in the Bible belt. And so all of the things that come along with that you know, are, we're definitely true of our school. Mm-hmm. That's a very polite way of describing that. Okay. <laughs> That's good. I always, cause I always like to joke now that I have a, a, because I'm on the East coast and there's so many people with private school educations and I don't mm-hmm. understand that world. And I was like, I don't know. I went to a public school in Indiana. Um, but comparatively I do similarly, I, I feel fortunate because I do feel like I received a, a, well-rounded education from a public high school that, you know, helped me get into many other great opportunities. And so it's, it's also interesting to hear it from your perspective on, on that as well. I wonder if you felt at all that there was anything that you needed to unlearn from our educational experience. (sighs) From, 
from our educational, like specifically from high school, unlearn. There, I mean, there are things I needed to unlearn, but those were more like personal at home, like environmental aspects of mm -hmm. it. But things I needed to unlearn from, well, so there's things I actually wish I learned, wish ha I had learned more when I was in high school, which was um, more about like, writing research papers, um, things that probably would have helped me a lot more in college. Um, getting, because I also really enjoyed the the English department. And I don't really, I don't know, there, there was a lot of opportunities to do different types of writing, but I don't feel, feel like I was just, I never, and maybe that's not what high school is supposed to be. I guess I just kind of learned about the ideas of writing without Mm -hmm. learning how to express myself. So maybe that's what it is. I never really, and I still struggle with this. And I struggled this was when I had a designer too, like finding my unique voice and not just like parroting or mm -hmm. pulling from other sources around me, which I got very good at. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna say that like originality and finding my own unique style. Mm -hmm. what, what about you? Um, I think that there was a lot I had to unlearn just from growing up in such a homogenous environment um, and just having like not the experience that I wished I would have had ahead of college mm -hmm. um, with just other people, you know, like we were very, I feel like insular. So, um, so, and, and everything that comes along with that, you know, and so yeah, um, I also feel like I had to, and maybe this is like still kind of a reckoning that's going on, but I had to unlearn a lot of the history, like like world history and U.S. history in particular. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I didn't realize that, you know, maybe what we were learning wasn't what everyone else was learning. <laughs> yeah, there's there's that too. Um, I think it's, it's probably particularly like close to home for you because you were also wanting to be a, a teacher in that way. And so you were also re-examining those different elements of, of what you were taught versus how you want to teach and improve on that. That, um, But that's, yeah. It, I, I love what you said about um, wanting to kind of find your original voice because when my last year that I was teaching high school, um, I remember telling the kids in my class, it was a freshman class, that I'm, I, I'm not there to teach them English, like they already know English, but what I'm trying to do is to get what's inside of them out um, and teach them how to articulate what they're thinking, not to teach them how to, or not to teach them what to think, but to help, help them articulate what they are thinking. Yeah. Um, and that, like, now that I'm no longer in the classroom, like, that's what I miss the most is like helping kids um, bridge those gaps between mm -hmm. between their heart, their mind, their mouth, or their pen. Um, yeah, that I miss that a lot. Yeah, I know this is not your main focus, but have you have you thought about creating a like an online course or a variation of that? That again is the classroom experience that you were striving to have, or the one that you wish you you had had. I definitely see in my future working with that age group again um, in some way similar okay. to, to that. Um, I guess what I, what I have been doing 
in the past uh, few years to kind of scratch that itch is I've been working with um, refugee families and uh, those in particular who have uh, the, the, they need the language skills. Mm -hmm. And so getting to help, help them take what's inside of them and get it out in English, <laughs> um, that has been super rewarding. Um, and, you know, like, a fantastic experience. So yeah, I, I, when I look into the future, I see a lot of, of those things coming together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I had not considered an online course, but maybe yeah. I should. You, so you definitely should. I would, take, <laughs> I would take your online course. So your, so your, you made an interesting comment then about like unlearning, let's say cultural references or just things you had thought were correct, but were not. What was, when was that moment that it hit you that you were told a version, someone's version of the truth mm -hmm. and not what actually happened? When, do you remember when that happened or how that felt like? So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know so much if I was told certain things as much as conditioned, okay. you know, um, just in the environment that, that we grew up in. Um, but I went from small town, Indiana to living in Metro Detroit and there, like when you talk about diversity there, yeah, yeah. the difference between where I came from. Um, I mean, the, the, I, I would say that the most diversity that we had was that we had to share the roads with Amish buggies, you know, like, so that was kind of, <laughs> the biggest um the biggest difference but yeah now coming to metro detroit where i mean it's just it's so rich in cultures and mm -hmm. in like all kinds of people from all over the world live here and um you know i'm a i'm a parent and having and, and getting to see my kids go to school uh in this kind of environment where they they're surrounded by people of all different religions and all different races and you know, all different gender identities and sexual identities and just how, how awesome that is for them. Like I'm very jealous of my kids' childhood. Um, yeah. So I think it was just, I think everyone needs to leave their hometown, mm -hmm. maybe not permanently, but the world is so much bigger than you realize when you're a kid. Um, you know, and I would say like most kids don't get to travel a lot when they're young, you know, that's just like the world. Um, but just to get out of your hometown and meet people who aren't just like you, who don't have the same experiences as you, like there's, I mean, there's nothing, nothing more valuable than that. Um, even if you end up going back to your hometown, I think everybody needs to get out of it. You don't know what you don't know until you're, until you're faced with it. Oh yes, that, that is so true. I, um, so I had a, a very profound experience in that, which is going to sound also cliche because I went to Big Ten school for undergrad, which is Indiana University, but I, I went to an extension of it first in South Bend. So I didn't really leave the area, but talked my way into the Florence program, which again, which is very cliche, Big Ten school. But in that instance, I was surrounded by like 50 other students who I've never met before from many different areas. And I got a very like strong culture shock of first being in a foreign country, um, even though I'm Italian and my Italian is terrible, but so there's that being away for like a month and a half and then surrounded by 50 people that I've never met before 
from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicity, like everything else was completely different from what I'd experienced in our hometown. And it was just, it was absolutely profound. And that's why I ended up translating to IU Bloomington for that reason, because the conversations they were having were what I, again, I'd only ever seen in movies of like, right. people talking about ideas and this is like rich experiences. And I didn't have any of that in our hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's wonderful that you got something very similar to that quickly. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so you are a, a teacher. So tell me more about that. How, how long were you a teacher? And then when did you decide you wanted to, to switch over to being a, a writer? Or call um, yourself a writer, I guess. Let's put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so I I taught high school for a while. Um, and then I um the reason I left teaching high school is I don't even know. It's kind of sad actually. Um, because I don't know if this hadn't happened, you know, if I would have how long I would have stayed in the profession. Um, but I, I intercepted a bomb threat at the school I was at and, and there were several days following that where multiple times during the day, the fire alarm was pulled Mm -hmm. and I, it just got to the point where I'm like, am I safe here? You know, and is this, is this a, and to any educator out there who's listening, like, like I I think you are um, a hero that you go to school every day because not, there are just so many, so many reasons not to be a teacher right now, you know, and, and you do have, at some point, every teacher has asked themselves, whether it's during a lockdown drill or um, uh, after reading the headlines, after a tragedy at a school, everyone asks themselves, asks themselves, am I willing to die for this job? And we're talking about teaching in the public school system. Like this is not something. This isn't the military, you know. And and teachers are having to having to reckon with those questions. And I was young and not willing to spend the rest of my professional years worrying about those things. Um, so I do wonder, like, if that was a kind of a crossroads for me. If that hadn't happened you know, where would I be now? Um, so I actually went from that to, I went from teaching high school. So teaching Shakespeare, teaching literature. I went from that to teaching, um, uh, preschool, which was very different. Um, but also very invaluable and, and still, you know, doing a lot of really important things. Um, again, if anyone out there is in early childhood education, my hat is off to you. You are doing, heroic work every day and for no money and and yeah and we need really good teachers in that in that area of the education system and they're so undervalued um so yeah so then I did that um for a while and while I was doing that I got this idea for a book and so I was actually doing, I was, I was working as a teacher and then I ended up in the administration in that, in that job. Um, but then I also had a side business as a photographer um, and I had two kids under four and then I get this idea for a book. And I remember at the time um, my husband was in Switzerland for work 
and we were instant messaging and I just told them this idea that I had. And I'm like, this is crazy. Cause when do I, when I have time to do anything like creative other than, you know, the photography work. And he's like, it doesn't matter. Like whatever it takes, you have to write this book. So, you know, again, like, I don't, you have to have supportive people in your life. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're a creative or you're pursuing creative work, um, because most of the time it's a very lonely endeavor. Um, and also like very brain consuming <laughs> um, and not something, especially with writing, like there's not, you can't just go to a, a group of people and be like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm writing the story and I'm stuck, but then they don't have like the foundation of the story. Like they're not in your head. They're not in your brain. So it's not, so it's very like you work out all the problems on your own. Um, so it's really, it's, the mental load of writing a story of writing a book is crazy heavy. Um, so yeah, so then I spent about 18 months in my free time writing my first book. Um, and I, I, the experience was amazing. Like I love the creative process of creating a world that doesn't exist and convincing people with my words that it's real. And so, yeah, I would say like, that's probably when I would first have considered myself a writer is when I, when I completed that book. Okay. So for your, for your first book, um, which may I ask the title? Sure. It's songs, eight, six songs, eight, six. Okay. (laughs) So your first book songs, like six, um, how did you learn about the organizational process of writing a book and how did you organize the book because you as you've just described there's you know, characters there's worlds a lot going mm-hmm. on did you what was your process like that like and did you have to learn it or was that something you already picked up along the way um so I mean I assume it's different for everyone and for me I find my own creative writing process very frustrating um I, I think of it as I you know I'm 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 writing a story and I have to write it the wrong way, like 150 times until I find the right way. So it's like, it's just, it's like a discovery, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I wish in some ways that I could be the kind of person who's like, I am going to create an outline for this story and I'm going to follow this outline and I'm going to complete the story. But that I, my brain would be like, this is so boring. I'm not doing this. And it would just like shut off. Um, and so I have to have like the element of surprise when I'm writing. So I, like, I start with just a, like this grand idea Mm -hmm. and, or like, like, um, like one point that I want to make or explore or, um, learn from, you know, because I learn a lot when I'm writing and then I just, imagine, you know, like so much of writing is sitting in front of a blank computer screen or staring out of a window or, you know, like zoning out. So Mm -hmm. if anyone out there, if they are really into like daydreaming, you might be a writer, Um, (laughs) but it's super fun. And, and so then like just creating all of those, you know, the, you know, finding what is interesting about the thing that you're 
pursuing mm-hmm. and then getting to not only like create it, but also incorporate like some truth into it. And so then what you're writing is not only fiction, but it's also like a little bit true. Um, and I like the, the, the point that those things like intersect that that's really fun for me. Um, with songs eight, six in particular, like I've, I've learned just from feedback from other people, not because this was anything that I ever like tried to like do intentionally. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm told that I, I write visually, like I write as though I'm writing a TV show or writing a movie. Um, and I didn't really know that there's any other way to write except the way that I write. So Mm -hmm. I, like, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have picked that up about myself, but um, looking back at the process for Songs 8-6, I do know that I went through, um, I created created all of these um, like character sketches. So I would like find pictures of actors online. Mm-hmm. I would create the backstory for my character and assign it to like, this is, this is the face that goes with the story. And like, you know, so basically I'm writing um, you know, the, the background, the bio sheets for all of these, like as though I were casting some kind of television mm-hmm. show. And then now that I have like the visual and all of these stories and all of their histories, even if the readers are never going to see the histories, like I know them now. So I can pull from them as I'm telling the story. And that I found was very helpful because I, I knew those characters as though they were people. So I didn't necessarily have to be like, well, what would they say here? You know, what, it, because I, I know them and I know what they'd say. That's interesting. And you're right. That's what, so it sounds like every script, whether play or everything else that I've ever read, the good ones are just like that. Like they're, you know exactly who the characters are and they're defined early on. Um, so, I, and I love that, yeah, your visual elements, that's fantastic. Okay, so, so you did your first book. How did that, how did that go? Tell me about the process after you finished writing it. Okay. So with my first book, I, like, I was very novice at even just the idea of the publishing industry. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm a creative. I don't know the nitty gritty details of like, like how you go from point A to I have a published book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after I finished my manuscript, um, I, I tried I was talking to somebody, a, a, a small publishing company, and just kind of asking them, like, you know, telling them about my story and asking them, like, you know, like, what would the process be? And they kind of let me know, like, because of the, I was writing this very, very mixed genre where, and, and unfairly so, I think that the story was labeled as too religious for a secular audience and too secular for a religious audience. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, without having and without having to sacrifice one of those things for the other, which I didn't think I should have to do, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm just gonna put it out there the way that I want to, and then um, it'll find its audience. So I went the self-publishing route, which took a lot of research um, and, you know, we did the whole, like, we started an LLC so that we could create our own quote unquote publishing company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you have to like, I had to pay for editing. I had to pay for ISBN numbers. So there's like a huge upfront cost to really trying to, to get a self-published novel out into the world. 
um, especially now since Amazon has made it so easy for people to self-publish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I know people locally who have self-published literally hundreds of stories, hundreds of books, and in a very short amount of time. And so anyone can do it. Um, now as to like the quality, there there's no quality control. You know, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not vetted. Um, and so I think there are some very, very good self-published books, but the, the, the hard part is that they are few and far between and in a sea of, of things that, you know, that kind of taint the idea of self-publishing. Like it's, you know, the, mm-hmm. the quality of a lot of what's out there, you know, even the seriousness with which some people take the idea of self-publishing, um, it just, it makes for a very like murky, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard to find the good stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, but you know, we went for it and um, I think, I mean, these stats that I, that I know are pretty old at this point, but um, at the time I heard or read that the life of a self-published novel is about 300 copies. Okay. Um, and that has to do with like, just the ability to market is limited, um, you know, for a, some people more than others. And um, especially if you don't have a platform that reaches a lot of people and just the work that it takes, I mean, the work that it takes to get anyone's attention for anything, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it too, but when I love something, I don't like rush out and tell everyone I love it or like leave a review or like, you know, like that's work, that's effort, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are literally from the time you get up, the time you go to bed, the world is vying for your attention in a million different ways. Everybody, everything, everywhere wants something from you. Mm -hmm. And so you have to tune a lot of that out. And if, if you have like, it's easy to tune out somebody, somebody's work if they're not if it's not being screamed from the rooftops, you know? So, um, so even just being, even just being one person with, I mean, I had a lot of support. I had a, I had uh, a great response to my work and I had some very enthusiastic people who wanted to help get it out there. And I don't, I don't know what like final numbers would have been in the first couple of years of the book. I want to say, you know, anywhere from 500 to a thousand copies I probably sold, um, which, didn't even come close to helping me break even for the upfront costs of the setting up the LLC and, um, you know, the editing, the editing was very expensive Mm -hmm. because I wanted it to be good. So, you know, you hire like the best of the best. Um, so yeah, so I don't know that I, I mean, I'll never break even on what I spent on that book. So for all of those reasons, (laughs) that was not the route that I wanted to take, um, for my second book. Okay. All right. So, okay. So second book then first off, let's start from, you obviously enjoyed the process enough to go, okay, great. Now I need a second book. But mm-hmm. Where did the idea for your second book come from and, and how was that process different from your first book? Mm-hmm. Okay. So for my second book, I wanted to write something completely different. So I didn't want it to be one of these like mixed genre or like 
I don't know, I didn't want it to be pigeonholed as a, well, this is a certain kind of story. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to, you know, deviate from, from the first idea. And so I, I knew that I wanted to write a, a non-romantic love story. So like uh, a, a friend love story between Mm -hmm. uh, a male and a female. And because I feel like those stories, I mean, I don't know very many of those stories. <laughs> um, and so I, that's, that was my, that was my starting point and it evolved into a lot of other things. Um, but that is the, that's the main focus of the story. Okay. And um, it's funny earlier when, before we started recording and you said that the thing that you remembered most about me is that I worked at a video store. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is about a video store in the nineties. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm like, like weirdly honored that that's what you remember about me <laughs> because that was the best job I ever had. And it was so formative and I just loved every moment of it. So I wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not autobiographical, but I thought that's, that is a great setting. Um, and I, I love, I loved writing about the nineties because that was like the last time we had a monoculture. You know, that was the last time where we were kind of, whether we wanted to be or not, we were kind of all experiencing the same, the same culture at the same time, the same mm-hmm. pop culture, the same music, um, you know, the same movies, those were like, we all had that. And now because of the internet, because of social media, because of streaming services, because of all of those things, you know, two people can grow up next door to each other and have completely different pop culture experiences from the time they're born until the time they graduate high school and have them never intersect. So like, especially like this, you know, the generation that came after the nineties, they have no idea what it's like to have that kind of, you know, that bond, I guess, weird, odd bond. Um, I was just listening to a podcast the other day and they said something about how like the one, the first episode of Friends had like 21.5 million viewers. And I'm thinking now like a fantastic number for some kind of show, like a network show is like 3 million mm-hmm. because there's just so many other options vying for people's attention. Um, and so many like, you know, very specific things for very specific interests. Um, and so, yeah, so going back to that point where, you know, it was, it was before all of that and there were less options in a way we were kind of bonded closer by that. Um, and so, yeah, that was really intriguing to me to like, uh, especially because the characters who I set up in, in the video store, the different, um, employees, they are nothing alike at all they you know they're all very individual yet they have this commonality like they this video store where they all have the same they're all like renting out the same movies to the same people you know um and I just I love that and I mean I miss that I miss having those kind of shared experiences with people Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you okay so you have your setting of the video store which I, I again uh, absolutely love. Um, um, sad to see video stores go. I have very fond memories of like my teens and even twenties 
like binging videos um one after another again before netflix before <laughs> netflix came up and you had, you had to physically go and like exchange them and anyway um watch a lot of series that way like horror mm-hmm. flicks all that kind of stuff anyway um okay so you have your setting does it also take place in a like setting so you have your physical location but what about like the like the actual like in the other broader parts of the environment how much how much do you pull from your life currently in the broader midwest Mm -hmm. um that influences your writing or do you set areas of places that you have not lived or experienced before how does that how do you think through that area so i when, when I was in high school, I well, actually was in eighth grade. I had a, my ELA teacher always said like authors write what they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was her way of saying like, there's a little bit of truth in every piece of fiction, which I firmly believe that too. So I would feel like a fraud to write authentically or try to write authentically about a place that I had never been. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so my first book took place in Middlebury, Indiana, which is not far from where I grew up. Um, and the Baby and Solo takes place in Royal Oak, Michigan, which is not far from where I've lived for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, although I was not a, I, I did not live here in the 90s. And so that was kind of, that was a really fun, um, that was fun to research because I did want it to be authentic. Um, and I can, you know, I can, I can describe what Royal, like what Royal Oak has been like for the last 15 years, but not before that. Right. Um, so it was fun to like talk to people who had lived here during that time. And, um, and this, this little uh, tangent is something that I just, I just learned recently. So I had gone down downtown Royal Oak um, to try and scout out like where would this video store have been because I wanted it to, I wanted like the visual of like, okay, this is it. So next to it would have been this and over here, you know, just the, the geography of it. And I picked this building that is on the corner of like Washington and fourth street. And it is such a cool space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the time it was like a shoe store, but I'm like, this, this deserves to be more than a shoe store. <laughs> um, and so cut to a few months ago, um, a bookstore opened there in that same space. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went in and I was talking to the owners and I was like, I wrote a book about your store, <laughs> but it was, I, it took place in the nineties and it was a video store. And she like looks at me and she's like, my parents own this building. There used to be a video store here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so crazy. Like, I don't know. It just made it feel even that more, you know, that much more real to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was cool. Um, so yeah, to, like lived experience, I think is, is definitely a big part of writing, at least yeah. for me yeah. to be authentic in it. Yeah. Okay. And so for this book, yeah, so you, you mentioned before, so you, you went to self-publishing for, for first, first version, this one, how, when did you decide you wanted to go more of a traditional publishing route for this? And what was that process like? Yeah. So from the get-go, I was like this, I want this story. I want, I want to try to see if I can get traditionally published, you know, and, and I wasn't even sure what all went into that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time I, I, 
I had met this woman. Um, I was actually her son's preschool teacher. And then we just became friends after that. And she was kind of instrumental in, in encouraging me to, to write in the first place. She actually designed the cover of Songs 86 because she, um, she used to be an architect. She's a very gifted artist. She's now a children's book writer and illustrator. And um, I love her dearly. But anyway, she had been pursuing um, an agent and uh, he loved her work and he, you know, they became agent and client. Mm -hmm. um, and the day that she went to meet him in person for the first time in New York, um, I just happened to text her and ask if she was at her usual writing spot because I was going to go visit her. Um, and at the time I had been struggling with um, Baby and Solo. I had taken it several different directions. I had, you know, 25,000 words and then 50 and then I would scrap it all and start over. And at one point I'm like, maybe I should write this about, but I should set it during Vietnam at the draft. And I'm like, or maybe this is really like a, sh a book about um, uh, a child of, of generational game show winners. And just like, I wanted the, I had the characters, but I was like, am I setting it in the right place? So anyway, I, and, um, and my friend was just, she, she loved this. She loved the characters and she wanted to help me find where they were going, but she didn't know how. Um, so anyway, so I, I try, I texted her just as she happened to be like knocking on her agent's door for the first time. Mm -hmm. And because I texted her at that moment, I was on her mind. And so she just started talking to him about what I was writing. And he said, well, do you think she let me look at it? Maybe I can give her some advice. And then he signed me after reading what I had written. So, I mean, I know that everyone has a different story about how they found their agent. Um, mine seems to infuriate a lot of people who had to put a lot more um, work into, <laughs> into finding their agent. Um, so yes, I, I am incredibly lucky and very, very grateful. And I don't take it for granted for one day um, how I got my agent um, and he's fantastic and awesome and a great person. Um, so yeah, so now that I, now that I was agented mm -hmm. um, and I finished my manuscript, um, so I, my agent is actually an editorial agent, meaning that they can give they're very good editors. They give editorial advice. They 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 try to like whip your manuscript into the best marketable shape that they can. Okay. Um, so that process took several months after the manuscript was finished, and, and you know, lots of very sage advice and very um, helpful constructive criticism helped me to really tighten up my story. And then um, what happened after that was he sent it out to different editors at different publishing houses that he thought might enjoy the story. Mm -hmm. um, and several of them responded, you know, very positively um, and very quickly. So then we had to set what's called, like we had to set an auction date. And it's, it's not like a traditional auction where people are just kind of like one-upping each other over and over again. It's more like you bring your, your best offer and you submit it by a certain time. And then the agent and the writer get to like look at all of what's being presented and, and choose the editor that they'd like to work with and the publisher who they'd like to represent them. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then after that's done, the process kind of starts all over again where there's more editing. Um, I would say for every sentence in Baby and Solo, I have written it and rewritten it 10 times, every sentence. <laughs> um, and it is hard and it is wonderful and it is like a growing experience and it is frustrating. It is all the things at once. Um, but I loved my editor. The process was very eye-opening and very educational. Um, and so then once, it, oh, and after you sell your manu manuscript, unless your work is very, very timely, um, like maybe something news related or social justice related or something that is like um, in the now, um, or unless you're like super famous already, which I was not, um, there's like a two year wait. There's okay. like from the time that you, from the time that I, I sold my manuscript in, let's see, uh, January of 2019 mm -hmm. with the publishing date, spring 2021. So a lot, a lot of time passed before it was, you know, available in bookstores. Yeah. Um, but a lot's going on during that time too. Okay. What, yeah, what were you like, what, so for those two years, since you've mm -hmm. already I guess I'm guessing that's like when you submitted the final and they're like, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to publish it. So you've got two years. What do they do in those two years? So it's a lot more editing. Okay. And it's uh, so like a, a lot of things happen. So you're coming up with your marketing plan. You're coming up with your cover art. Um, you're trying to figure out like who, who's the best audience for this? How are we going to get it to that specific audience? Um, and then there's also a lot of waiting and during the waiting time, you're writing other things. So it's not like it's, it's wasted time. Um, but it, it, there is something about like seeing that you already completed this thing and it's not going to see the light of day for two years. That is like really, um, a little discouraging, especially when that happens during a pandemic and your book comes out in the middle of a time in history where no one can go anywhere or, or, you know, be in person with anyone. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so all of you listeners out there who, um, who are readers, uh, do authors a favor and look up who debuted from 2020 to 2021 um, and, you know, go back and give their books a try because none of us got to tour, none of us got to do school visits or speaking engagements. And that is how, that's how authors sell books. That's how we network. That's how we communicate with one another. Um, and to have that, that component of the experience missing was, you know, was devastating for not just me, but everyone who was debuting at the same time that I was. Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's my that's my plea <laughs> <laughs> I love it okay so so you had two years to put it all together and then um so it comes out in 2021 what was so what was that process like of like it officially being live mm -hmm. um well it is as frustrating as it was that it happened when it did under the circumstances of the world that it did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still, 
it's still a dream come true, you know, to see something, to conceive of an idea and turn it into a 110,000 word story that, you know, that you just kind of birth into the world. Um, it's gratifying and then it's terrifying because then you have, you know, you wait for the response. Um, and you hope that the response is what you intended. Mm -hmm. And then you realize that there are 7 billion people on the planet and they all have their individual perspectives and they bring their own life experience and their own, um, I don't know, their own interests and their own hurts and joys. And they bring all of that when they sit down and read a story. And then you, you learn how people react to the work that you put out there. Um, and then you, you find your people, you find the people who connected with it and they reach out to you, which if you've ever loved a book, if you've ever loved a story and you've thought to yourself, I wish I could reach out to the writer and let them know, please, please, please do it. There, most writers out there have a very public way that you can get in touch with them, whether it's social media or a website, um, you know, a designated email address that you can reach out to them. Like, please, please, please do it because that's, that's, that's the success. That's success right there is when you get to connect with a reader who your story meant something to. And those, the emails that I get, um, the conversations that I have now that I'm able to like, you know, go into and do events, like anytime I talk to somebody who's passionate about my story or who it meant something to, or who, you know, it, you know, my book deals with a lot of very hard issues. Um, so anyone who finds it therapeutic, like there's nothing, there's nothing better than that. Like that's, that's the measure of success for me is, is whether or not it's connecting with the right people and it's helping people and, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious just about your, so your, your processes in general, since you, you're talking about putting yourself out there and, and waiting for the audience, how do, you, how do you approach fear? Because that, you know, writing and, and, and putting yourself out there is, a, for some people particularly, a terrifying experience. Mm -hmm. So for you, how do you look at the idea of fear and how do you move past that to be able to produce work that is meaningful to you and to an audience? Um, I love that you asked this because in a way, like my agent asked the same thing, um, or at least I, I answered in a way that also answers this question. But, you know, he asked like, you know, why do you, why did you write this? And I wrote my greatest fear. That is what this story is about. Um, and to be able to face it fictionally was therapeutic for me, it was cathartic for me. Um, and to be able to do that in a way that I had control over very specifically articulating the story that I wanted to tell, mm -hmm. um, it made the fear less fearful, less scary. Um, and so like, I would say that fear is a very necessary component in, in my process. Um, you know, this, this current story that I'm working on right now is absolutely terrifying to me. And that is what keeps me going. It's like, I have to defeat the fear of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I could not be a writer without fear. 
So with everything that you have done and experienced, what would you say has been the best advice you were ever given? Um, the best advice I've ever been given is very cliche, but it is go with your gut. Like I, I'm not like a neurologist. I don't know a lot about the brain, but I do believe that there, like there's a consciousness that we're not aware of. And that consciousness is, it, it is wise and it, it, it takes in everything and it's constantly assessing and it signals when something is right or wrong. Um, and whether or not it can, um, whether or not you can articulate what that is, um, I feel like it, it's a real, it's a real response to the world, whatever your gut's telling you. And so, yeah, so that's, that I mean, my gut doesn't lead me wrong uh, very often. So yeah, go with your gut. Wonderful. I, I absolutely love it. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's if, been great. Yes. If the listeners would like to get in touch with you or buy your books, uh, where is the best place to do all of this? Um, I always tell people to buy my book at your indie bookstore, whatever indie bookstore is closest to you. Um, it's available anywhere that you buy books. Um, it's available online at Amazon, Target, all of those places. Um, but if you want bookstores to keep existing, then you should buy books at bookstores. Um, so yeah, and then to get in touch, uh, my website is www.lisabethposthuma.com and um, my Instagram handle, which I respond very quickly to, is um, at lisabethposthuma underscore rights. Wonderful, excellent. Well, I will put all of those in the show notes and listeners can click right through. But again, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Blackbones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.